This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing Another Giant Robots podcast. I'm your host, Chad Pytel. And with me today is Jared Drysdale, the designer, writer, and consultant at Studio Fellow. Jared, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So it's been a while since you've been on the show. Uh, yep. There is now a new host of the show. Right. You talked to Ben last time, episode 33. Yeah, it was a while which ago. Was more back in uh, 2013. Wow, I didn't so, realize it was that long. Four years? Wow. So at the time, you had just started a new project called Cascade.io. Mm-hmm. And you had not too long before that released bootstrapping design. So what have you been up to since then? A lot of things. Well, after not too long, I realized the Cascade thing wasn't going to work out. I worked on that for probably around a year, relaunched it a couple times and didn't sell too well. And I had a really hard time marketing it. So I shut it down and uh, started focusing on other things for a while. So I wrote a few more books and also shut those down. And now I'm uh, doing online design courses. Mm -hmm. It's kind of my latest focus. So remind people, I don't want to spend too much time on actually what Cascade was because yeah, yeah. You, like you said, you shut it down, but can you remind people what it was? Yeah, you bet. So at the time, this was back when uh, what we were calling now UI kits were just kind of brand new. So mm-hmm. basically the, the concept for Cascade was a UI kit that you could really customize in a lot of ways. So kind of like a front end framework, kind of like Bootstrap. It was actually built on top of Bootstrap, but it had a lot of customizable features like mm-hmm. font pairings and logo designs and color schemes and a bunch of predefined like design modules, almost like patterns that you could kind of stack mm-hmm. together to create pages or web app UIs, things like that. So uh, it was meant to be this kind of starter kit for programmers who are going out and starting their own software businesses like web-based mm-hmm. software. So it would give them kind of all the design assets they needed to get rolling uh, rather than having to kind of produce them from scratch or hire somebody or you know learn to do it all. So I, I'm interested in the fact that you ended up you know shutting it down and, and deciding that you needed to move on after working on it for a while and yeah. making some changes a few times. Like, What was that process like? How did you decide ultimately that that was the right thing and deal with that? situation. Yeah, it was tricky. So after bootstrapping design, my goal was to kind of funnel the same audience into Cascade. And bootstrapping design, if people don't remember, was a book about it basically taught design to programmers and startup types who were, you know, kind of building their own side projects. So that was the premise. And I was thinking that Cascade would be something kind of like an upgrade for them. You know, if designing it on your own proved to be too hard, which some of them were writing to me and saying, this is still too hard, Mm -hmm. you know, this would be a solution for them. And when I launched the product, I think I made about $10,000 in sales or so, something like that. And I tried repositioning it, tried a bunch of different marketing tactics. I think I redesigned the landing page for it, the homepage for it, like six times, maybe. (laughs) A lot of times. And just trying different messaging and different branding for it. And over time, I started to realize that there were some problems with the product itself just with the product design. I mean, as you know, you know, picking up a new programming framework is a lot of work, right? Mm-hmm. So basically what I was asking people to do was buy a programming framework, learn how to use it, 
and then go and get all the benefits from it. So it required so much effort from a customer to really get the value out of it, which I think is what one of the biggest problems with it was just because uh, it was kind of a one-off product and uh, it was not built upon a big familiar ecosystem that some people might be familiar with. It was built on top of Bootstrap, but I still had a bunch of custom stuff sitting on top mm -hmm. of that. So it was a lot of work for people to pick it up and use it. And I think that was one of the things that really uh, limited people. I, I spoke with several of the people who bought it and they never used it because it proved to be mm -hmm. too difficult. So that was a mm -hmm. big challenge. And then otherwise, you know, I was running into problems with you know, marketing, that was kind of a, the, the whole UI kit thing was kind of a new concept at the time. But as I launched Cascade, not soon after I started to see free ones coming out or cheaper ones coming out and the design market just kind of got saturated with those really quickly. And it got to be kind of hard to kind of position it amongst all that noise. My positioning was kind of positioning it against themes, you know, the WordPress theme marketplaces and things, right. which are things that a lot of developers go to when they're starting a new business, they'll grab a WordPress theme or they'll, yeah. you know, kind of modify it, you know, pull styles from it, whatever. And I found that positioning my framework against that made sense. But then as more UI kits came out, it was hard to justify the price, the higher price tag and kind of the, the opinionated approach that I took with the product. Did you struggle with finally deciding to move on? Yeah, yeah, of course I did. I mean, after you work on something for so long, I don't remember exactly how many hours I put into it. I know I worked on it on and off for maybe a year. I was doing other things as well, like client work and mm -hmm. things. But investing that amount of time, there's the whole idea of sunk costs, right? And right. getting over that is hard. And, but at the same time, you know, I really believed in the product and I thought that there was a good value and realizing that the value wasn't what I thought it was, was, yeah, that's hard for sure. Um, but it's a learning experience too. You know, if you look at the story of anybody who has their own business, who, who releases products, they go through this, right? You've got to learn to kind of see your own products through your customer's eyes. And it's really hard to do that, uh, to see things objectively when you're so attached to something. So I think that's something I'm getting better at. And the, the cascade experience, I think helped me start to understand, uh, to see that perspective a little more clearly. Yeah, I think I hesitate to use the word failure because yeah. if you're not failing, it means you're not trying. Right. Um, yeah. But in my life, in my experience, I've learned more from things that didn't go as I was expecting than I have from things that, that went perfectly as I was expecting. I mean, right. the playbook isn't filled with things that we were like, it should work this way. And then we did it and it did work that way. It's all from the literally tens, dozens, hundreds of projects that we've built and projects that we've worked on with clients and for ourselves that had tons of problems. Right. And we said, what can we do to avoid that in the future and learn from it? Yeah, and I think I, I would be curious as to your opinion on this, but when do you say, okay, I need to keep pivoting versus when do I just call it quits? You know, yeah, drawing that's why that I was asking you because yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think so, anybody has a great answer to that, really. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. you just have to go with the data you have. And I think yeah. in my case, I mean, I've shut down several products, but in my case, it tends to be when I've tried, you know, all the approaches I can find. I've talked to my mm -hmm. customers about it, asked them questions and said, hey, how could I make this better for you? And, you know, I'm not getting like a clear story or a clear path forward. Then it's time to move on. That's that's yeah. where I call it. Yes, I agree. I think that, um, so 
Cascade was a one-off purchase, right? Yes. And in some ways that might be a little bit easier to, to do that with. Where we've struggled is when it's a subscription service, mm-hmm. you're sort of even more so like you've made a commitment to people. You are There is a small, uh, you know, a handful of customers or even a couple hundred customers paying a small amount a month. You really do feel a commitment to them. And also a feeling like, well, it works for these people. Why doesn't it work for more? Right. Yeah. And we've been in that scenario a few times where we're investing tremendous amounts of time and energy and therefore money into working on a product that isn't growing. But that commitment feeling and the feeling like there is a base of customers, if we could just figure out how to grow that, Mm -hmm. has probably caused us to work on things much longer than we should have. Now, fortunately, now one of those things, and I think you were in this situation as well, like Cascade not working out probably wasn't going to sink you, right? Right, right, yeah. And the same is true for products with ThoughtBot. And as a result, the ones where it hasn't quite worked out, like we had a product called Copycopter, which you embedded it in your app, and then it gave you a web interface for editing all the copy in that in that app hmm. um, offline. It was a separate service that you edited all the copy, and then it synced the copy to the locally running app. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. It solved a real problem we had. It had a you know a reasonable base of customers. Um, I forget exactly how many it was, maybe fifty or a hundred, mm-hmm. but it was just not getting the traction or growing. And so because we didn't need that product to be successful and uh, and the hopes and dreams and success of the company weren't pinned on it. We were able to both shut it down and open source it at the same time. Hmm. So as a result of that experience, I think we've been more okay with shutting things down because we realized actually there's a path for us to do this and not really let people down. And in the case of that, we took one of the customers who was asking, uh, using it most and asked them if they wanted to take over as maintainer of the open source. Oh, that's project. a great idea. Yeah. And we moved it into its own org and, and let them take over as maintainer mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. I think, you know, when to draw that line is really, really tough because, yeah. you know, and I'm sure you've, you've found this too. When you do shut something down, everybody comes out of the woodwork and says, well, did you try this? And did you try that? <laughs> yeah. You know, and you're like, yeah, I tried probably half of that stuff. And the other half, my customers said, I would hate it if you did that. So, right. you know, right. it's, there's always more ideas for things that you can do and, you have to kind of go with the data you have. And I don't think there's ever a time where you can say, well, this is dead. I, I think that I've never seen a case like that at least, but I think the the sunk costs fallacy is a big thing. You know, if you read up about that, basically people are very hesitant to throw away effort or money or whatever that they've invested and they keep uh, throwing good money after bad, so to speak. So, you know, that's that's a tough thing to get over in business. Yeah. You can't really even rely on the feeling that you don't enjoy it anymore because mm-hmm. <laughs> this is so much in our community and culture is like the grit and determination of pushing through adversity, right. even when yeah. it's bad, <laughs> yeah. into becoming successful. Mm-hmm. But I do think you sort of need to rely on that. It's one thing to have a day or a week where you're just not feeling it. Like you feel like- sure this is bad and and I'm no longer enjoying this project or this product or and if you've gotten to the point where it's it's now an extended period of time where you've been both unsuccessful in the business side of it and also are no longer enjoying it 
you've probably moved past the pivot mode or the grit mode right. into the you just need to move on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, people take it kind of almost as a badge of honor to keep doing something even though it's really hard. And I think that is, like you said, an important value to have. You know, you have to persist because this isn't going to work out overnight. So you've got to be able right. to keep going and weather some of the, the challenging parts of it. But at the same time, when you quit something, I get a sense sometimes that people kind of respect you just a little bit less because you just didn't have enough to keep going. And I see that as like, oh, well, this was dying. You weren't there during all of that. Like, it's easy for you to say that, but you weren't there when I was hearing from customers that they're not using the product that they bought and all these things. So yeah, there's probably a culture of saying that quitting is bad, but I think quitting can be a good thing too. um, So long as you do have that kind of grit to keep going when it's worth continuing. So yeah. So we talked a lot about a project you killed yeah. uh, t- two years ago, yeah. but I think that there's hopefully some lessons there for people. Yeah. What are some of the other things you've been working on? Yeah, so I wrote uh, two more books. I wrote a book about design for clients. So the, the con- it was called My Designer is Driving Me Crazy. It's the title of the book. It's not available anymore, so don't look for it. But basically the concept <laughs> of it was kind of teaching clients and other non-designers, quote unquote, and I use that term without any condescension meant, um, mm-hmm. just uh, kind of to demystify design and how it works, why it's valuable. So kind of teaching them about what designers do when they disappear. You know, what are, what is a designer sitting down and doing? Why do they ask you for this information? What does the process work like? And then also teaching them a little bit about design theory and principles so that they understand Mm -hmm. this is why designers do things the way they do. And the idea was that uh, this would be a good resource for designers to kind of give out to their clients when they're working with them. And Mm -hmm. so I wrote that book. And then I wrote another book for designers uh, called Off the Chopping Block. And it was another kind of client services focused book about just kind of how to deal with revisions and how to manage clients and set expectations and and things like that. Both of those books had a handful of sales and I've since kind of discontinued them because I'm planning on turning them into online courses. So for right now, they're not available, but they'll come back in a a new form later. But Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, both of those books did marginally well. I think uh, the positioning on those was also a little bit tricky. Selling a book about design to clients in retrospect was not a great idea because I had to go through one audience to get to the the target audience. You know, I had to go right. through designers to reach their clients. So that was probably not the greatest idea in retrospect. And then the revisions book off the chopping block did really well. It had a lower price point. So the, the revenue from it wasn't great, but it did a really good job of kind of reaching some more of my audience that I hadn't met before and kind of expanding my uh, following a little bit. So that was a great book. Mm-hmm. And I also, somewhere in there, I did a little service called Landing Page in a Day. It was a consulting service. I launched this on Hacker News. It was just kind of a random idea I had. I threw together a landing page for it in one day as the the name (laughs) of of the product. So I I wrote the landing page, you know, coded it and everything. And this was actually using Cascade. This was part of an effort to salvage some of my investment into that product. So I was going to turn it into a service, a client service, and I would use the framework to produce client projects much more quickly than I could otherwise. So that was the concept. I launched this service landing page in a day and the the concept was clients pay me a thousand bucks and they get a one page website, one day turnaround. They have to book the day in advance, you know, maybe a couple weeks out, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I would design the page, code the HTML, launch it to their server, write the copy, everything all done. And that did 
really well. I got a waiting list of about 200 leads for that, uh, mostly from Hacker News, I think. I, ha I got more work from that than I could handle, actually. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about that product was that, you know, I ended up booking probably seven to 10 projects, and then I had to close it down and say, okay, the spots are full for a month because I'm only mm -hmm. one person. I'm not an agency, right? And then when I opened it back up, it was like the leads had all dried up. Right. So that was also an interesting project because what I learned from that, and this is another one that I've shut down. I've shut down a bunch of stuff now. Mm -hmm. I've got mm -hmm. so many failed There's products to talk about. Yeah. But, and I'm, I'm not embarrassed to talk about it at all because I've learned from it. But that one was interesting because I learned a lot about how products can be timely for your audience and how mm -hmm. people buy when they need it. And a lot of times they're not willing to wait. You know, I think a lot of people in the products arena kind of have this feeling like you can build anticipation and get people on waiting lists and, you know, keep telling them about it while you're building it. And I found with that one, you know, I launched it really quickly but just because of the nature of the product, I couldn't serve everybody right. at the same time. So I had to make people wait just because of time constraints. And that one, it really came through clearly that timing is important. And mm -hmm. I should have probably planned that a little bit better when I launched it and you know maybe had a public calendar or something that people could sign up for rather than just kind of a generic waiting list. But that timeliness aspect is really fascinating to me because in a lot of ways, I learned kind of some of the opposite things of what people tell you about building anticipation with marketing your products. And mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. in that case, it almost kind of backfired. <laughs> so yeah. that, was, that was a fun one. And then the latest thing is an online design course that I'm working on. And mm -hmm. that one is still going. I haven't shut it down yet. So fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, so you work on a lot of projects, products. Yeah. How do you decide what to spend your time on? That's for the books, yeah. for example, mm -hmm. you know, how do you decide what to write about and to do? The concepts for my products all come from conversations and research for my audience. So I've been running my newsletter, my design newsletter for, well, at least for four years since I was last on this podcast, probably mm -hmm. five years now. And over time, I've just had so many conversations with my audience, you know, about uh, what aspects of learning design are hard. And, you know, it's generally been themed as a design newsletter the entire time, even though I've worked on different kind of angles of design and mm -hmm. even some different audiences within there. But over time, you know, I just had these conversations and I go up and look, you know, I read uh, designer news and, you know, design blogs and various sites. And I kind of try to tune into the things people are struggling with and their challenges. And then the conversations with my audience and, you know, people will reply to newsletters and ask me questions, things like that. All of that kind of information I use to kind of condense down into product concepts. So it all comes out of Theoretically, what are people's needs and things that they actually want that they're looking for? Mm -hmm. And is it working for you? I would say in some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. I think there's this, and I think this is really good to research you know, your audience before you launch mm -hmm. a product and not, you know, I think it's the kind of Silicon Valley cliche to like launch something and then go look for an audience for it. And right. I think that's a horrible idea. But I have also found that researching your audience and trying to uncover their needs is a very tricky thing to do. And mm -hmm. getting data out of that that you can actually use and that people will actually act on can be really hard. So I think that, yes, it's good to pull your ideas for your products out of your audience and the people who will be using them. But at the same time, you have to kind of qualify that stuff and make sure that you're kind of testing things, giving them opportunities to act on it. One thing that I did with bootstrapping design was I launched a landing page before I even started writing the book. And I said, mm -hmm. 
this is a book, sign up and I'll notify you when it launches. I hadn't written a word, you know, mm -hmm. and I just wanted to see if I could successfully market this product to the audience. And I think I got something like a thousand signups or somewhere around there, which was huge for me at the time. I didn't even have a newsletter. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was a way of kind of testing the concept. Even though I'd, I'd done a lot of research about the audience for that product, I wanted to see if they would actually act on it. And I think that for some of these products that I've ended up shutting down, I probably didn't test them well enough like that. Mm -hmm. I probably should have done landing pages and you know email signups and uh, beta releases, things like that. So mm -hmm. one of the, the big things that I've been doing on my latest product, which is an online course, is I did an early access period for the course. So I did the whole thing with the, the landing page sign up to be notified when the course is ready. And then about a third of the way through writing the course, I opened up an early access thing. So I let people on my mailing list apply for early access and they got the course for 50 bucks instead of 200 bucks. And the agreement was that they would give me feedback on each lesson that I released as I released mm -hmm. it. And that way I was kind of getting two pieces of information. Will these people actually buy this? You know, will the audience actually buy this? And then also I was able to actually tailor the product as I was making it to customer feedback. So rather than researching it, disappearing for a while and making the product and coming back and saying, hey, everybody, it's ready, I was building it alongside my audience. And mm -hmm. so far, that approach has been working a lot better than the approach I used for the last few projects. So yeah. uh, that's been really encouraging. So I would say, uh, to get back to your question about whether it works to research your audience and pull your product concepts from there, I would say, yes, it works but you need to keep researching while you're building the mm -hmm. product. For mm -hmm. me, it's a temptation to just disappear while I'm working on my product because that's just how I work. You know, I'm a, I'm a designer. I like to just kind of get into the details, dig in. It doesn't come naturally to share what I'm doing. And I think that adding that as part of your product design process is really critical so that you're really building something not just based on research, but something that also matches what people are actually doing. Yeah. Did you, as you were developing the course for the early access users, did you also talk about when you had like a new delivery, not just to them, but to the rest of your audience too? Yes, I did. Right. So I was uh, sharing kind of previews of the content yeah. as I would write it. So the full lesson would go out to the early access students and then my mailing list would get like a one minute video teaser yeah. about what yeah. the topic was. So I think the the main mailing list got those for several months, two or three months mm -hmm. before the course actually launched. Yeah. I find that doing what you did, which is having the early access, gives yourself permission then to talk about it with everybody else, which mm. then builds that excitement and that interest. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to a situation like what you were saying in terms of either just announcing it and then going away <laughs> or the hesitancy around announcing it and then continuing to tease it over the course of a long period of time potentially, mm -hmm. but not actually delivering anything to anybody feels very inauthentic. It does, yeah. So doing that, giving some people access and then talking about it to everybody feels, at least for me anyway, when I'm in that situation, I feel better about it. And mm -hmm. I'm not just, I'm, I'm doing marketing, but it feels better. Right, me. it's not, I mean, I think a lot of people have this kind of 
reaction to kind of cringe when you say the word marketing, like it feels mm. like this kind of scummy thing. But if you do it that way, you know, when you're working alongside your audience and trying to do something that's valuable to them, it doesn't feel like marketing in the kind of scummy traditional sense, I think. I don't think marketing has to be scummy, right? But I think, uh, like you said, it's more authentic and it's based on what the people need and what they're telling you, you know, rather than you just trying to get them to buy something. And I think that changes the dynamic completely. Yeah. So what kind of people are taking the course that you're offering now? So I, a while back, I switched my audience to focus completely on designers. So mm-hmm. I discovered, you know, after the Cascade thing and after the book for designers clients thing, I really needed to focus my audience a little bit more and think a little bit more carefully about how I was kind of structuring my product offerings. So I decided to kind of shift completely to focus on designers, basically teaching design. Uh, one thing I found when I released the first book, Bootstrapping Design, was that a lot of designers were reading it, even though it wasn't really meant for them. I was Mm -hmm. surprised, actually, at how many more experienced designers were picking up the book, even though it was very, it was about the fundamentals, you know, it was about the basics. Mm -hmm. And basically, my goal has been to kind of backtrack and reproduce that kind of direction, but for the design audience. So that's what the course is. The new course is called Theory Sprints, and it's basically teaching design fundamentals and I take kind of a different track with how I teach design than I have in the past because one of the things that I've learned from talking to the audience uh, was that, I mean, there's a lot of free design education out there, but there's a lot of new designers who feel kind of lost and they're trying to do things like responsive design and design systems and UX research and a lot of really what I would consider to be high level strategies, more advanced Mm -hmm. strategies. And these new designers are out there trying to do this stuff and they don't even know color theory. They don't know how to use a grid system. They don't know those fundamentals. So the goal with this course is to kind of give these people some classic design training, train you in the visual design fundamentals you need in order to do those more advanced things later. And so far, I I mentioned that I did an early access period. I've also opened up the course a couple of times, just like for a week at a time. And the goal of that was just to kind of keep working on the course with a limited number of students um, to make sure that the product was right, you know, to keep improving the content, make sure that it fit correctly. So I've gotten about 100 students in there, all designers of various experience levels. Cool. Are you using a platform to host the course? It's all custom WordPress theme. Yeah. So I use a plugin called Restrict Content Pro, mm-hmm. and it hooks into Stripe and PayPal to process payments and uh, does a bunch of stuff. So it's basically all built on that. And another plugin called WP Complete, it's made by Paul Jarvis and Zach Gilbert. That is, it basically turns your WordPress theme into a course software. It lets people mm-hmm. complete lessons, mark things as completed, it shows progress bars, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So with a kind of a combination of plugins, I built a custom WordPress theme to kind of run the course. Was there a particular reason you went down that road or instead of yeah. using existing platform? Yeah, I think, I mean, there are a lot of options out there. When I first started building the course, uh, some of the newer, cooler uh, online course platforms didn't exist. And I had just kind of started on that route and kept going. But uh, the other side of it is, you know, building a custom site is kind of something I like doing as a designer. And because I'm a, my audience is designers, I want to have that kind of high-end custom design kind of feel for them. I think mm-hmm. in terms of a business strategy, it just makes sense to appeal to my audience to have a, a designed product, you know? So 
that's the, the other thinking. It also gives me a lot of control over how I structure the course. One thing I've found with a lot of online course platforms is that they're really only set up to do a couple things. You can embed videos, you can embed text, and that's kind of it. Some have various other features like forms or worksheets or quizzes and things, but uh, they all tend to work a little bit differently. And, you know, I just, I wanted to be able to kind of format and design the course the way I thought was best. So going custom just worked better for me. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, I think there are a lot of courses out there that use course platforms and do a great job. So I don't think there's anything wrong with it. That was just the right choice for me. Yeah. So the way I understand it, you've traditionally done some client work, but you're mm -hmm. not currently taking new clients. I actually do both. Yeah. So for oh. the past couple of years, I've been doing consulting work as well. So mm -hmm. kind of juggling both sides of the business. So after I did the landing page in a day thing, I did an experiment with retainers. Mm -hmm. And one of my clients was saying to me, I'm tired of paying you every couple months or having to, you know, review your proposals every couple months. Can I just pay you the same amount every month and you can just work for me on whatever we decide to do that month? And that was kind of how it started. And since then, I've been pretty much working on retainers almost exclusively for two years. Mm -hmm. um, and that pretty much pays the bills. Retainer work pays the bills and then frees me up to kind of do my product work on top of that. So, right. So on the landing page for your consulting services, you do something, uh, the wording you use really jumps out at me, mm -hmm. and that's grow your business with design. Yeah, yeah. Is that what you're helping a lot of people do? Yeah, it is. I, I think, you know, the consulting services, especially the retainers that I offer, I'm kind of a generalist, so I, I can take on a lot of different tasks. Mm -hmm. So I don't just do CRO, conversion rate optimization stuff. I do a lot of different things. Some of it's branding work, some of it's designing new products, some of it's designing pricing pages, or, you know, it can be a lot of different things, but I make a strong effort in my consulting work to make sure that the, every project is kind of attached to a goal, to a business goal, so that we know what the value of the project is, we know what the impact on the business can be, we have metrics so that we're trying to measure what's gonna happen, and all of those things kind of work into that vision you know, that you see there on the consulting page, which is grow your business. So yeah, that's kind of how I frame everything. And I, my approach to design is very much about results and outcomes because, you know, I don't want somebody's money if I'm not helping them grow. You know, I, I want to provide value and not just make pretty pictures at the end of the mm -hmm. day. So, and I've also found that, you know, clients see me more as a partner when I'm trying to help them grow their businesses rather than just send them a nice graphic or something. So it yeah. just changes the relationship completely and the types of clients I get to work with. So uh, there are just so many benefits to working that way. Yeah. Do you think how businesses view design and the importance of design to business is changing or has changed? Yeah, I do. I think that the whole UX movement that we've had, I mean, this has been going on a while, obviously, but mm -hmm. I think that's a very positive trend. I can be a little bit outspoken against UX sometimes because I think that for some businesses, it's too much. You know, if you're a, a brand new business, small budget, hiring somebody to do a six month UX study is probably not the best use of your money. But mm -hmm. for bigger businesses, great use of money. But overall, I think that the UX trend and those methodologies, the user research and the, you know, the customer interviews and all of that stuff is very positive because it's showing clients that design is a lot more than pretty pictures. We're solving problems. We can actually have an impact on the bottom line of the business. So yeah, I think overall, I see that certain types of clients are valuing design more, or maybe the better way to put it is they're understanding the value of design better. 
I think in the past I would have said, yeah, clients still think it's valuable, but at the end of the day, it's just kind of like a pretty picture to them. And I mm -hmm. think in the last few years, the clients that I've been working with are much better educated about the value of it for their businesses. That said, I found that smaller clients, that kind of thinking still has not kind of caught on for some smaller types of clients who are doing, you know, maybe custom WordPress themes, smaller projects, mm -hmm. you know, not really big, bigger businesses. Some smaller clients will look at UX and, uh, you know, you, you suggest doing user research or implementing analytics on their site, things like that. They're like, why do I have to pay extra to do that stuff? I don't get it. I just want a nice looking site and that's all I want from you. You know, so there are a lot of conversations still that you have to have with certain types of clients and even in certain industries where they just haven't caught on to that kind of thinking yet. But I would say overall, I've noticed a definite shift. And I think the other positive aspect of UX is that it's teaching designers to explain our value better. And I think that's probably the biggest reason that the clients don't get it is because designers are pretty bad at talking about why design is valuable. And that's something that I, that I write about a lot is how to reveal the value of your work and how to show to your clients and your boss and, you know, other non-designers yeah. non you work with that you doing your best work is what's best for them, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's where a lot of struggles that designers face come from just because of that misunderstanding. We actually, I believe we have a parallel that we can look to that, you know, started to happen a while ago and is sort of commonplace now, and that is on the IT technology side. Mm -hmm. Used to be that technology and information technology was viewed as like a an expense, a co like a cost center in companies. Mm -hmm. And there was no executive level <laughs> IT, there was no CTO or right, CIOs. Yeah. It was something that you spent money on to get your business done. And over time, people started to realize, especially as you know, more and more of people's businesses was software and that kind of thing, the importance and understanding that this wasn't just a cost center, it was an important part of the business and the strategy, and one that would actually allow us to be more successful, in fact, maybe even generate revenue then transitioned that and you started to see more buy-in and more positions at the leadership and executive level that then led to like CTOs and CIOs being very commonplace. Very interesting. I think design has an opportunity to go along that same trajectory that what was traditionally seen as not important, nice to have, cost center, a thing that we spend money on but don't really get anything back from that design and design thinking helps people build better, more successful businesses. And as more people realize that it will grow in importance in the organization. And I wouldn't be surprised if a decade from now we have more companies, even more so than we do now with chief design officers, chief experience officers, or those kinds of things at major companies and as just a sort of fundamental part of doing business. Yeah, I totally agree. And you see that kind of thinking spreading with the under the term design thinking. Yeah. And that's been a really big push, I think, like at Stanford and in mm -hmm. some of those circles. But you see uh, more CEOs and director level types talking about design thinking. And I think that's really good. I can be kind of critical of some of that stuff because I think the value of design comes down to the execution and the details and not just 
that everybody on the board likes design. It's more about reflecting those values and implementing them. And that's where the real mm -hmm. challenge that I see is uh, with the clients I work with. It's about not just getting everybody on board to see why this is valuable, but getting them to actually do it. Right. Listening to your designer and saying, okay, the whole organization is going to make some changes to actually implement this new vision. Because a lot of times what you see is, uh, you know, and this is not to be critical of any specific companies or even any of the clients I've worked with, but you see certain areas within a company kind of tend to make the decisions, you know? Mm -hmm. So you see like, maybe it's the engineering team or maybe it's the CEO or whoever it is. They're the ones saying, okay, we're going to go build this page and this is what's going to be on it. And this is how this feature is going to work or whatever. And then a designer comes in and says, well, wait, let's, let's talk to the users. Let's do some right. research here. Let's uh, get some prototypes out there and test them and see what happens. And there's a lot of pushback on that thinking, even though those decision makers, those stakeholders would probably say, yeah, we value design. We're about right. design thinking. So I think there's a, still a lot of work to be done about implementing it, you know, yeah. getting organizations exactly and clients to actually go I, ahead with it. Yeah. That's why I relate it to sort of a, the parallel track that IT technology went on because mm -hmm. I think it was a similar thing, which is no one was saying like computers weren't important or technology wasn't right. important. Yeah. It would, you'd be hard pressed to get someone to say that, but they didn't value it and it wasn't part of the strategy and there wasn't a seat at the table for it. Right. It was, we're going to make our business and we're going to make our decisions and then IT is going to come along and clean it up essentially. Yeah. So I think we'll get there eventually with design. And I think I thought this for a long time. I think maybe my thinking has shifted a little bit in that I used to think, particularly from the perspective of ThoughtBot with an integrated design and development team and believing that that's a very effective way to work. I thought maybe what would happen is that you know the technology seat at the table would expand to include design. And now I've come to believe that that's the wrong approach, that design should exist outside of how it can be applied just within technology hmm. and should stand on its own as a way to, to build successful businesses. Interesting. So. Yeah, I don't know if I've heard of a lot of kind of like executive level, you know, like you mentioned chief experience officer, or chief mm -hmm. design officer. I don't think I've heard of a lot of that yet. And I think I agree. I think having designers involved in the decision-making process is important, but I think there's gotta be somebody who's responsible for the execution and who can go out yeah. and say, okay, everybody needs to get on board with this. This is what we're doing. I don't know if right. that needs to be at the executive level or if that needs to be a separate group that handles that, but, and I think that might depend on the company, but. Oh yeah, totally. You know, I think overall, there's still a lot of mileage to go in terms oh, of executing yeah. the design thinking because one of the things that I've noticed in the past couple of years is, and again, I think this is a very positive trend, but a lot of it sounds very academic. What you read mm -hmm. about design thinking and UX, it sounds very academic. Like, okay, well, we got to take a year to research before we can actually do anything. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things that turns off a lot of clients that I talk to is, wait, so I've got to wait three months extra before I can launch this new feature. Like my right. users want it now. Like this could bring me profits if I could launch this now. So it sounds very impractical, some of the stuff out there. So, you know, I think a lot of these steps are very valuable, you know, doing mm -hmm. user research and, you know, releasing prototypes and testing things. Those are all very good things. But 
we designers, I think, still have a lot of ways to go in terms of how we present that and maybe being willing to modify the process for the situation. Because we tend mm-hmm. to have these kind of complex processes and say, this works for everything. And what you end up with, and especially for smaller clients or medium-sized companies that don't have the budget for a six-month UX study, they're just going to go somewhere else. They're going to go hire somebody cheaper, somebody mm-hmm. who can give them a one-month turnaround. And in the long run, maybe that's not as good for them. So we need to be adapting the process to fit businesses of all sizes and different types of challenges rather than making them all big and complicated. And that's something that I've been talking about or writing about a lot. And I think, you know, especially when I work with clients, I try to say, okay, I know you've said, you've heard all this stuff about UX, but it doesn't have to be that big. We can make this simpler for smaller features. If you're in a rush, here's what I recommend. We check some boxes, make sure that we're not doing Mm -hmm. anything wrong. You know, so I think adapting that process is really important. And I hope that designers start catching on to that because I've met uh, UX designers that struggle to get hired because their work seems very academic, very uh, disconnected with the reality that a business is facing. So I think that presentation and just the way we explain that stuff to clients, we still have a lot of work to do. So Cool. Well, thanks, Jared. If people want to learn more about your work or listen to you, uh, where can they do that? Yeah. So my personal website is studiofellow.com. I also just launched a new design training website at proximityschool.com, which is where my online course is. So you can read articles on both those places and follow me on Twitter at studiofellow. You can find show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. See you next time.